This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. We're excited to have as our guest today, Oksana Kukurutsa, whose parents immigrated to the United States from Ukraine after World War II. And she would like to talk to us about their experiences and about the current situation in Ukraine. And I'm Mary Elkins. Oksana is a Ukrainian-American businesswoman and author working on a narrative nonfiction book about her parents and Ukraine titled Sunflowers Bend But Rarely Break. We're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the conflict today and about her book. Welcome, Oksana. Thank you, Kathy and Mary, for having me. I really appreciate it and look forward to our discussion today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the subject. We are too. We're happy to have you. Please tell us a little bit about your background and how it influenced the work you're doing today. Sure. So... um, I was born um, in the United States, uh, very grateful for that. And um, I think I have that gratitude of being an American because I am the daughter of immigrants who chose the United States as this country, you know, as opposed, as opposed to being born into it. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that was interesting ab- about my life, too, and I think for a lot of um, either immigrants when they come over when they're really young or those of us who are born into an immigrant family is we never quite feel like we belong. Like we feel like we have one foot in two different cultures. So at home, we, I lived very much a Ukrainian culture and lifestyle. We ate a lot of Ukrainian food. There was a lot of Ukrainian music and Ukrainian culture um, all around us. But then when I stepped outside of my home and I went to school or I went to the store or, or different places. And it was very much an American culture. So I never quite felt like I belonged because Ukrainians are a bit stoic and resilient and serious. And Americans are much more optimistic and bubbly and friendly. And I was always a little mix of both. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think how that shaped me was I spent a lot of my life trying to figure myself out because. I didn't quite know where I belonged. And I think it wasn't until in my early 20s where I embraced both both sides of me because I had this opportunity to go work in Ukraine that I realized that I, I have two faces and that's okay. And I learned to kind of meld them to maybe be the best of me. And so I think how that helps me too is in the work that I do, I do come across a lot of people from different cultures and from all over the world. And I always seek to ask questions first and not make assumptions. 
and mm. learn more about them and try to find some common interests. And I think it's helped me to form good friendships with people all over the place, as well as um, to formulate strong teams that come from very diverse backgrounds. Mm. Well, I do want to hear more about uh, the culture differences and also about food, but I'd like to know what was Ukraine like in the 1990s when you were there and also how it changed in the 21st century. And another question, way too many, but um, what happened to bring about the crisis today? Those are all very good questions questions to ask, and there will be a lot of answers to them. So it was really interesting moving to Ukraine, and I moved there in January of 1996. And the first thing I noticed is how cold winter is in Ukraine. Mm. (laughs) There are discussions of um, invasions that happen. I think Napoleon and even Hitler invading, you know, Ukraine and Russia in the winter time. It really isn't a good idea because it is it is very cold there. And um, so that that was the first thing, you know, my first impression when I went to Ukraine for the first time. Uh, the other thing I I saw was um, that there was definitely a dichotomy um, in Ukraine when I was there in the mid in the mid nineteen nineties. There was one side of it, which I would say would be the older, the older people, the, the people that were born and raised and, and I guess more formulated in Soviet society, uh, that were very upset and very sad um, with, with what was happening. And there was a lot of poverty uh, in Ukraine at the time. And you would see kind of old pensioner women, you know, on the streets. They weren't begging in the traditional way that we see it, but, you know, they would just, you know, have their, their heads down and their, their arms out and their hands out, um, just needing money. And, and those were the really sad things to see about Ukraine. But then on the other hand, I had the opportunity to work for this Western company, a company where I was able to travel around quite a bit because I did public accounting for Deloitte and Touche. And so I worked with a lot of young people that were in their early 20s and mid 20s. And even though there was poverty there, they saw so much opportunity. They were so Mm -hmm. excited to see Westerners coming to Ukraine and Western companies. And they saw so much opportunity in the changes that were happening in Ukraine in the early days, where I think it was leaving the older generation out. So it was mm-hmm. definitely, you know, kind of a mixed bag in, in terms of, of what I experienced there. I would say the other thing culturally, and I think this will help explain what's happening today, is during when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire, as well as the Soviet Union, especially the most more Eastern parts, the Russian government at the time, um, or leadership, really tried to Russify the Ukrainian population that was under Mm. its control, like 300 years of Russification. And so the other thing I noticed, because I did have the opportunity to travel about, so my home base was Kiev, but I had the opportunity to work in the western parts of Ukraine and in the eastern parts. And the other thing that you would find is 
when you started in the West, most of the population spoke Ukrainian. The further that you moved east mm. and the furthest that I was able to work was in Dnipro, um, which at the time was called Dnipropetrovsk. By the time I got there, you know, it was, you know, 70, 80 percent Russian speaking as opposed mm. to Ukrainian speaking. And so it was it still? interesting to see that. Well, no. Um, so I have a sort of an interesting story after um, many years after I left Ukraine. It was I think it was 2016. So it was after the first invasion um, by by Putin and the Russian Federation. And I was sitting down to dinner in New York and it turned out that my waiter came from the city of Zaporizhia that's on the news quite a bit. And so when I heard he was from Zaporizhia, I asked him, oh, so you must, you know, come from a Russian speaking family. And he got very upset with me and he said, no, I'm Ukrainian and we only speak Ukrainian at home. And that was the first time I realized that there had been a monumental change happening throughout the country of Ukraine, not just the Western parts, where Ukrainians really wanted to start embracing more their Ukrainian language and their culture and create something distinct that always existed, but was melded together with Russia because there was a lot of intermarriage that happened, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the areas that were close to the border. And mm -hmm. from everything that I have been seeing and reading about and, and talking with um, former colleagues that uh, still have family in Ukraine or are still living in Ukraine, that there's just much more embracing of being Ukrainian, learning the language, and really leaving behind that kind of russified legacy. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are clashing to form the crisis now, or, I mean, that's a full on war at this point. So yeah, it but. is, it is. And um, there, I believe that there are a lot of reasons why um, the war is occurring today. Um, and, you know, I, I see it as, you know, Putin's war. <laughs> He's the one yeah. who decided mm -hmm. to invade yeah. and yeah. he has a number of reasons for wanting to do that. I do believe he wants Ukraine to be a buffer nation to NATO, similar oh. to what Belarus says. And mm -hmm. Ukraine has decided to take this journey to be closer to the European Union and mm -hmm. to the West and to leave behind the legacy of communism, of mm -hmm. um, dictatorships. And that's something that, you know, I, I just don't believe that Putin wants to see happen. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is the areas that Putin's been invading are rich in mineral wealth. Mm -hmm. And we know that, mm -hmm. um, that, that Putin's power comes from the oligarchs. So that's another reason why he doesn't want to let Ukraine go. A third reason mm -hmm. I believe that he wants to keep Ukraine close to him or a part of Russia has to do with the complications of, of history between Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. The origins of each of those modern nations goes back to the Slavonic people of Kiev Rus. And the center of that empire and that culture was in Kiev. And it started in the 500s. And 
the, the grand prince of Kiev who ruled all of Kiev Rus sat in Kiev. And when the Mongols came in and invaded, um, Kiev Rus died off. Um, but before they did that, um, before that happened, it had quite a legacy of culture, um, as well as it was a decision of the grand prince to turn or convert all of the Slavonic people to orthodoxy, the orthodoxy mm. religion. And so I also believe because you can look at the history, Moscow didn't exist until the mid 1100s. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the mind of someone like Putin, who sees himself as potentially a future czar or a czar, to him, having Kiev and Ukraine as part of Russia is very important to him. Mm -hmm. Because one, it makes Russian culture older than it truly is if you look mm. at when moscow was born and secondly putin derives his power from both the oligarchs and the russian orthodox church and so um. kiev the birth birthplace of orthodoxy for the slavonic people therefore needs to be a part of russia mm. or yeah, then the orthodox church isn't russian yeah that, that can you talk a, a little bit about like what it was what it was like for you growing up in the U.S. with most of your family being on the other side of the Iron Curtain at that time. And then tell us what, what was it like when you met them in person? Sure. So both of my parents were very close to their families, uh, especially my mother. She was extremely close to her sister, Stefania. And when they came to the United States, they came with six children and very little, uh, very little money. <laughs> very, they were basically starting from scratch with, with very little. However, they both always maintained communication with their family. And I believe that there was both love as well as guilt because their families were stuck behind the Iron Curtain and didn't have the kind of freedom that both of my parents were able to obtain coming to the United States. And so they both felt it very important that whatever they could do um, in terms of sending material goods over to help their families in Ukraine, they would do that. And oftentimes they did that at the expense of their own children because we grew up very poor and there were scarce resources. And so my parents, you know, did as good job as they could raising us as well as writing letters back and forth with their families and sending the currency of the day, which happened to be Levi jeans over to oh, their yeah. families. Yeah. But for the rest of us, we looked at our family over there that we had never met before, almost as competition for oh. those scarce resources. And so it definitely caused friction in our family. And none of us children were all that interested, to be quite honest, in our family over there, which was really sad. Um, because when I did have the opportunity to go over there, and I talk about it in, in my book, 
I, you know, initially had quite a bit of skepticism and meeting uh, my mother's side of the family. But as I got to know them better and visited a few times, I realized that, you know, that they were, you know, victims the same way that we were victims and that Mm -hmm. my parents were just trying to do the right thing. And they didn't know what was happening on our side. Like we didn't know what was happening to them. And so we've definitely reconciled. And in fact, I have a second cousin, um, Stefania's, I guess it would be Stefania's grandson who is in uh, New Jersey today. And he and I are very close. Mm-hmm. Well, that's talk- great. It's yeah. not surprising at all what went on between the families. It's very interesting that you can open up and reveal that. That's really good. I'm yeah. sure you talk about it in the book. Yeah. And, I do. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's a very common and universal immigrant experience. Um, talk a little bit more about your parents' experience growing up in Ukraine. And then, mm-hmm. as you talk about in your book, they had to work as slaves for the Third Reich, and then they became refugees before making their home in the U.S. That is quite a tale. Talk about that a little, if you would. Sure, sure. So my mother was born in a small little village outside of, um, in the Lvivska Oblast, but in the Carpathian Mountains. So she was very much a mountain girl. Town's called Zadavivka. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's super but- tiny. And she was born the third child uh, of a school teacher whose parents had a farm. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when my mother was quite small, her mother died of pneumonia and mm-hmm. her father remarried. And he remarried. I believe my hypothesis because he had three small children and he needed someone to help him raise the children so that he could focus on the farm as well as his, his reading and his scholarly work. And the stepmother had two more sons and they had issues on the farm, you know, a bad harvest and, you know, what kind of devastation a bad harvest could can cause. Mm-hmm. And so the stepmother, it's almost like a Cinderella story, the way that my mother would yeah. tell it. Uh, she put the three older children convinced, um, convinced my mother's father, and my grandfather to pull the three older children out of school to permanently work the farm. And my mother was a prolific reader. She was only in the third grade at the time but she loved reading. And so she was absolutely devastated from that and not being able to pursue her education. My father was born in a small town outside of the city of Ternopil or the Ternopilska Oblast. And he Mm -hmm. was born and, and raised in a family of subsistent farmers. And I'm not going to share all of the secrets in the book because my father's side has quite a bit of secrets, but he Mm. and his younger brother had a really tough life um, from his parents and ended up spending quite a bit of his childhood begging um, for food from the the villagers uh, around him just to be able to help himself and his brother survive. 
So they mm-hmm. both came with very difficult tales in growing up. And when the Nazis invaded, Germ- uh, invaded from Germany into Poland, and at the time between the wars, both my parents grew up in a part of Ukraine that was a part of Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. However, it was partitioned. I forgot to mention that part. It was partitioned between Stalin. The eastern part of Ukraine was given over to Stalin during a partition in 39. So the Germans didn't come in until 1941. But in late 1941, early 1942, the Germans were advertising through really serious propaganda. I mean, posters, they went into the churches and they were telling everyone in the villages that there were these wonderful jobs in Germany because mm-hmm. Ger- Germany needed people to help, you know, raise the food, you know, work on the farms and work in the factories to support the war. And so many, in the beginning at least, many Poles and Ukrainians and other Slavs were duped to move to Germany. They were told that this would only be for six months and they were given six month visas. And it wasn't until they arrived, they were put into, you know, transition camps, we'll call them. Their papers were taken away. Many of them were sold at auction, not unlike what we (laughs) saw in our own history. And that happened to both of my parents. They came separately because my mother was 17. My father was 20 at the time. I know a lot more about my mother's background. She ended up in an agricultural labor camp, forced labor, slave labor camp outside of Magdeburg in Eastern Germany. And that's where she spent um, the rest of the time during the war working 12 hour days with very little food. Initially, she was out in the fields. She worked very hard to learn German, and she was eventually given more freedom to go into the village, you know, like got a day off here or there, and and eventually um, was moved into a greenhouse where the work was a little bit better. She would try to, you know, find ways to save food and to help others. And she had these premonitions. I mean, she had sort of a sixth sense about herself. And so when when the Allies started bombing Magdeburg, she would get these premonitions of the bombs coming. And in fact, you know, and I talk about it in the book, there was a situation where she had a premonition that a bomb would hit their barracks. And she told the women around her to get out. And some of them listened to her and some of them didn't. Um, but she saves, you know, she saved many lives that day. Oh, wow. But yes. their, their escape stories must be off the charts. Interesting because how did, how did they escape? Yes. So uh, I know a lot about my mother's story because in 1988, when I was writing college essay admissions. <laughs> I asked <laughs> uh-huh. if I could interview her and she said yes. And I talk about it in, in the book. And so I recall her telling me about how she was in the camp in Magdeburg and the, you know, 
quote unquote Russians were coming. And many people didn't believe that they were coming because at that time, um, her camp had been initially liberated by the U.S. Army. Mm. However, they had deals to hand things over based on how the map of occupied Germany was drawn up for occupation of all of the allies. And so my mother decided to escape. She was able to slip away because it was pretty chaotic at the end of the war. And she spent two weeks in the woods trying to find the U.S. Army to be liberated. And because she had learned German and she was very fair haired and fair eyed. So she had dark blonde hair and she had hazel, hazel, a greenish hazel eyes. And she spoke decent German. And when she felt it was safe, she would knock on the doors of farmers and ask them, German farmers, and ask them where the Americans were. And they would help her. Ah, boy, was she smart. Yes. However, one day she did get stopped by police and she ended up in jail, a German jail for about three nights before they let her go. But she made it out and she made it to the, she made it to the U S army and they, and she asked for refugee status and they gave it to her because they didn't do this for everyone. There were 12 million Slavs that were first duped into coming to Germany, but then the Germans just started kidnapping them because, of course, word got around. (laughs) And so after the war, many millions survived and they were in these occupation zones, you know, either being liberated by the Russians or by the Western allies. Mm-hmm. And I learned one of the very interesting things I've learned in my research that my mother didn't tell me was that not everyone got to stay, that most Slavs who came from what became the Iron Curtain either willingly went back or were forced to return. Mm-hmm. So after the yeah. war, they actually separated people by the ones that were Western European versus the ones that were Eastern European that would have to be sent home. And so I never realized how lucky my, both my parents were to be yeah. liberated by compassionate Americans. who gave I just them keep thinking status. about that because she spoke German, but she didn't speak English. Yeah. She right? did not and, exactly. and, and she had to speak to the U S army and they probably didn't know any other languages. Right. Right. Oh, but so they had she translators. spoke Ukrainian, she spoke Polish, and she spoke German. So <laughs> I am guessing between those three languages, probably someone spoke German or, or Polish. Yeah, they must have had a translator. Over. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Vladimir Putin. Because sure. he says he invaded Ukraine because he believes it's part of Russia. And mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about that, but tell us why... Do some Ukrainians agree with that stance? And I think you obviously disagree with that. Yes. I, I Honestly, I don't believe there's a single Ukrainian. I mean, maybe there's a few odd, odd ones that were paid off or something. But even Ukrainians that speak Russian, they, they feel Ukrainian. So even when, even in the mid-1990s, 
when I was working in this, I worked in the cities of, of Dnipro, Kriveriri, where Zelensky is from. And even though I met so many Ukrainians that spoke only Russian, they were still proud Ukrainians. So I don't believe any of them mm. really feel that Ukraine is Russia. They've always felt like Russia was their brothers. And when you spoke with Russians, they've always felt that Ukrainians were their brothers. Now, there was a little bit of a look down upon, like they would say, these are my little brothers, as opposed to equal brothers. But there was mm -hmm. still this brotherhood between the two of them. And what's interesting is, you know, I explained a little bit about at least my hypotheses on why Putin's invading and why he believes it's mm -hmm. Russia, Russia's Ukraine, because he needs it to be for his mm -hmm. history and for his legacy and because of the Orthodox Church. But uh, what he's actually done by invading is the opposite. So right. he has made Ukrainians more Ukrainian and more mm -hmm. fervently Ukrainian and mm -hmm. given them a full identity that's even, I'm even embracing my language and I'm disregarding anything and everything Russian which is good in one way because I, I, as a Ukrainian and I grew up in Western Ukraine, which is very, you know, fervently Ukrainian, I'm happy to see them embrace mm -hmm. their identity and their culture. However, I don't know what the long-term legacy will be because, yeah. you know, will this war drag on now forever because Putin and Russia is now created 40 million enemies next door. And will, will there ever be resolution because of the bad blood that's, that's happened? I mean, I would much rather have had Ukraine peacefully transition towards the European Union and pulled Russia that way than have this conflict, which could mm -hmm. for hundreds of years, you know, create this animosity and bad blood between these two nations. Don't you think a lot of it would go away, though, if Putin passes away? <laughs> I wish. Somebody kills him. If somebody I will. wish the answer were that easy. Unfortunately, I'm, there are probably lots of mini Putins out there. <laughs> yeah, lots oh. of oligarchs. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, unfortunately, at least from what I've read, uh, I think because he spent so much time setting up his mafia state in Russia, even though he's never pointed a finger and said, this is my successor, there could be a few more of, of like him out there. I think what we can always hope for is maybe there's another Gorbachev in hiding. Mm. That is an, yeah, that there is an oligarch that would be supportive of someone like Navalny who would take Russia down a path of democracy. There's always that mm -hmm. hope. Um, but my, mm -hmm. my bit of cynical <laughs> Ukrainian side says, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little yeah. half empty on this one. So you think the Ukraine just has to win the war in order for it to gain its total freedom and independence? I do. I do. I believe that, that this really is their war of independence not mm -hmm. unlike what the United States had to do with two wars against right. the, you know, against Britain to really right. achieve our independence. Yeah. Or at least, at least make it so bad for Russia 
that they withdraw. Well, they're starting to drop drones on them. So Mm -hmm. that'll tell. Um, We shall see. How how do you think that the Ukrainians developed such resilience to fight back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of that in my perspective goes back to Ukrainian history. The name Ukraine itself means borderland. And if you see geographically where Ukraine sits, and Mm -hmm. if you know much about history, I'm a bit of a student of history, I'm not a historian, but it sits in the middle, it's always sat in the middle of great empires. It was once a great empire itself, but once Kiev Rus dissolved, it sat between empires in Poland, in Germany, in Russia. And over the years, Ukraine's had many masters whether the masters were Mongols or the masters were Russians or Poles or Austro-Hungarians and Germans. So the Ukrainian people themselves, and it's a little bit of the name of my book, which is Sunflowers Bend. So Ukrainians are very good at being flexible and, and bending. And also they're very... They're, they're, they're very good at taking care of themselves. So they're very self-reliant and the villages and the communities just learn to take care of themselves and not really care who is in power. And I believe that created this sense of resilience in terms of, well, it doesn't really matter who's in charge. We're just going to go about taking care of ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. However, since 1991, Ukraine's been an independent country. And for the first time, in hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been able to chart their own course. And in those 30 years, they've been a democracy, much more so than Russia has. They've had six presidents. Mm-hmm. Russia's yeah. had, I'm going to say two, because I'm not going to count Medvedev because he was yeah. just keeping the seat warm. And so they've, I think, realized that you know, they, they, they have a democracy. It's imperfect. There's a lot of corruption there. And all of, all of that is true. And I saw it when I lived there back in the 90s. But they're optimistic now. And so they're resilient because they've had this 30 years of, of freedom and charting their own course. And now mm. they don't want to give it up. Yeah. yeah. So, Who would? Right. And they see their future in the West and they don't want to go backward. They don't want to go back to. Could you talk a little bit about how you're writing this book now? And it's called Mm -hmm. Sunflowers Bend, but rarely Mm -hmm. break. Tell us Mm -hmm. what the title signifies and why the, what about the process of writing this now? Sure. So I am writing this book now because I've always thought my parents had a really interesting story to begin with. And it's one that really is a little known fact in history, you know, in a big part of our history in terms of World War II, but not many people talk about the Slavic slave camp experience and that it was 12 million people impacted by it. And then you had the refugee crisis afterwards where so many of these people were stuck in Europe. And I see the very familiarness of my parents' experience with what's happening in current day Russo-Ukraine war between the 6 million 
Ukrainian refugees living outside of Ukraine today, the 700,000 kidnapped children, Ukrainian children that have been taken to Russia against their will, the unknown numbers, right, of Ukrainian people in internment camps and reprogramming camps and occupied Ukraine and Russia. I feel like history is repeating itself again. And I really need needed a need to tell this story of my parents to shine a light on little known history as well as it's happening all over again. It's repeating itself, even though we said as a global community that this shouldn't happen again, but yet it's happening again. Mm-hmm. And we haven't Incredible. learned from it. And you even see, you know, the the splintering of the global community, you know, where a good part of it is behind Ukraine and supporting Ukraine. But there are others that are supporting Russia or at least mm-hmm. a- enabling Russia to do what it's doing. And yeah. yet if we as a global community came together, isolated Russian Putin and said, no, <laughs> you're not going to do this anymore because we just can't continue to allow genocide to happen. It's, it's mm-hmm. insane. And that's the reason I'm writing the book. And, and the book's called Sunflowers Bend But Rarely Break. Mm-hmm. Because one, sunflowers are the national flower of Ukraine. But, but that's not the reason. If, if you read about sunflowers, sunflowers bend for the sunlight, mm. even in the dark. I love and that. So, so it's the symbolism of how my parents never gave up hope mm-hmm. yeah. their entire lives that they could have a better life and they did achieve a better life and they raised 12 children and lots of grandchildren. And so they have a nice big legacy that they left. And I hope the same for all of the Ukrainians in Ukraine that yeah. those 40 million sunflowers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Knock on wood. Those 40 million sunflowers you know, continue to have that hope and they Mm -hmm. will reach the sun one day soon. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't get the picture out of my head before this war started of young people sitting at coffee shops outside having an afternoon coffee, just like we do here. And then Mm -hmm. suddenly everything's destroyed. And it's frightening to think that if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And that's the picture I it's very scary and, and should scare people in other places in the world. Don't you agree? I, I agree. And most of my colleagues that I knew back when I worked in Kiev, most of them are no longer in Ukraine. They're in cities like Luxembourg. They're in Vienna and or they're in the United States because they've been forced from their homes. They would mm-hmm. love to be in Ukraine right now but it's not safe mm-hmm. for them and it's not safe for their children and it's not the right environment to raise children. And yeah. they're the lucky ones because they're well-educated, they're professionals, they can afford to leave. Not everyone can. Yeah, and all the people mm-hmm. who've died because of the war, it's just frightening. It uh, really but is. on a more personal note, is it hard for you to go back and look at your parents' struggles as refugees and victims of the war and slavery in order to write the book? It's actually cathartic in a way Mm. um, because I find what's harder is reading and watching the news every day about Mm -hmm. Ukraine, but yet I can't turn away 
because I live there, I have connections there. And so for me, at this point, I want to be an advocate. And it's a little bit about the, you know, and I don't know if I'll become an advocate full time, or if it will be just a, what do they call these days, a side hustle that I do. (laughs) But I really want to become an advocate for Ukraine. And, you know, one of the ways I believe I can do this is maybe, you know, starting with this book, if I can get the book published, I can educate people in the in the West, not just about the history and and how it um, reflects on Ukraine today, but also maybe give a little bit into the insights and psyche of of the Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian mind and raise some money to Uh help Ukraine, you know, help the Ukrainian refugee crisis, help Ukraine in its reconstruction. Mm. I think that's might end up being my life's work going forward. It Some doesn't very sound solid like a side ideas. hustle. No, Some very, no, it doesn't. It sounds it like doesn't. a very solid idea. But mm-hmm. what would you like our audience to have as a takeaway today? It goes. It, it really goes back to my my feelings about how today's events are repeating what happened to my parents during World War II. Um, and the refugee camps. And, you know, if I could speak to the entire world, I would say that we all have responsibility to see this not happen again and to help Ukraine so that it doesn't happen again. We owe it to ourselves as a global community and we owe it to Ukraine. Fabulous. If we can in any little way, you know, in our own way, do something to help that cause, because it's not just about Ukraine. There will be another Ukraine. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's wonderful advice for all of us. And I think each and every one of us, if we could do something, it might really help. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Oksana Kukurutsa, businesswoman and Ukrainian-American author of the upcoming narrative nonfiction book, Sunflowers bend but rarely break. You can reach Oksana at sunflowersrarelybreak.com and on all social media. Thank you so much, Oksana. That was very enlightening. Thanks so much, Mary and Kathy, for having me. Thank you. We'd like to remind our listeners to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and on our YouTube Late Boomers podcast channel. And please follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z. And we also have late boomers on Instagram. We also strive to, we always strive to inspire, entertain, and motivate you. And thanks for joining us today. And thanks again, Oksana. Thank you. for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. 
This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.